All right, tonight we're finishing up our last lesson on Calvinism, and it's actually our last lesson in the quarter. And I have enjoyed this quarter, spending it with you, and I hope you've enjoyed all the different teachers that have come through here, speaking on different topics and um, covering these things. And just for way of review, remember what we're doing is we're looking at various teachings of other churches and other denominations. We're trying to better understand them so that we can understand the truth and then so that we can help each other come to unity and a better understanding of God's Word and growing closer to Him. And tonight we're looking specifically, we're wrapping up our series on Calvinism and we're looking at the five points of, two, of Calvinism which is often remembered by the acronym TULIP. And let's see, we were on question number one last time and this was our question. Does Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 not teach that even your faith is given to you by God apart from your works. Therefore, are we not saved by we are not saved by anything we do. So this, both of these are very popular proof texts that the Calvinists will bring up, and that's where we left off, and that's where we'll pick up in a minute. But I want to review, and I want to uh, mention some references since I'm just closing. I have uh, several references that are listed on there that are good. Um, Brother Walter did, I believe, either a class or some sermons several years ago, and he had some handouts. Right? Do you know if he gave these out? Is that um, here? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't really recall this. that. No. Okay, it's he about, may have. about 65 pages. And well, I don't have an electronic copy, but if anybody wants a hard copy, just look me up afterwards, and we'll have to set up a time because it is 65 pages. But I'll be glad to give you a copy of that. Um, also, uh, he did some sermons that I have recorded on the web. You can visit this website and get them. I don't know if you remember, but when Brother Curry was teaching the class, he said if there was two books that you should ever get, you should get T.W. Brent's The Gospel Plan of Salvation. This is one of them. And it's a very old book, late 1800s, and its primary point is dealing with Calvinism and establishing what the Bible teaches about what we must do to be saved. Uh, Robert Whiteside, an excellent commentary on Romans. Little book. It's very good. And Robert Shank, who is a Baptist, wrote two books, Elect in the Son and Life in the Son. And although obviously I wouldn't agree with a lot of the things that he taught, he did an outstanding job in dealing with Calvinism. And uh, Brother Walter references both of these in his works. Uh, they're dated from about 1960, very good works. Another gentleman, Steve Gregg, who is a, a Baptist, has a website called The Narrow Path. And he has a series of lessons that you can go and visit and he also has a web forum where people from Calvinists and uh, opposed to Calvinism discuss things. So if you would like to get a feel for what different people are saying and preparing for some of the different arguments, it's a good thing to look at. And then I have a website, In Search of Truth, and it's got some articles uh, in addition to these sermons. And it also has some forums where a lot of these topics are discussed. So, and just for comparison, this is what Calvin's book looks like, The Institute's. You can see he wrote quite a bit more than all these other put together. And that's just his institutes. That doesn't even cover his commentary. He's a very prolific writer. So if you'd like to do some more research, there's a wealth of material that's uh, relatively easy to get a hold of. Okay, our overview again. Remember, Tulip, the foundation, the soil that Tulip springs up from is sovereignty of God and the idea that God is the absolute being, but the assumption that's under contention is the fact that because he is absolute, he has made all decisions. 
Well, where is that in the Bible? That would be the thing that we would want to discuss with people. Just because he is all-powerful, can he not choose to give us some freedom of will? So that's, is that not a choice that he can make? So that's something to be, to be discussed. One of the choices that he's made under Calvinism is that all people would sin. And through Adam, Adam being the first person to sin, and when he did, he corrupted himself and all of his children following him. And this is the idea of total inherited depravity. And another choice that God made is that he would save some, but because we're depraved, God had to do it independent of anything good within us. So the election, the choosing of God, had to be without conditions. And then the idea that since God's done this clearly, when Jesus died on the cross, he only did it for the elect. He wouldn't do it for anybody else. So there's a limited atonement. And if some number of people are going to be saved, and that number cannot be changed, and those identities are fixed from eternity. And because of that, God's will will be accomplished. So his grace, his means to save people will be irresistible. They will be saved regardless of what they want to do. And then ultimately these people will endure or persevere to the end. So there's our two of All right. So getting back into unconditional election, this is another quote I found that I thought was very expressive from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Where it talks about, without any foresight of faith, this is God choosing out of his mere free, free grace and love. Without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, that's talking about us, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. So this choice is completely independent of anything we do, anything that he knows that we're going to do, anything about us. It's something that he has purely chosen on his own. So without any condition on our part. Okay, now back to our proof text question. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Does it not teach that even your faith is given to you by God apart from your works? In another passage, 2 Timothy 1, 9, uh, that we are saved by God's grace and by his calling and not based on our works. How would you deal with those passages? God does give us our faith, but it has to come uh, on an effort of our part too. It comes by either hearing the word of God or taking his word and, and reading and studying for ourselves. That's right. So without the word, without God giving us the word, where would we have our faith? Do they have a way of dealing with that? With uh, Romans 10 and 17, faith comes by hearing, not by imputation or whatever the word might be. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Uh, what they would probably say is that the way the Holy Spirit works is he softens the heart before you hear the gospel. So they have no problem with the fact that you get faith from the word. But still, they, they still cling to this idea and they would use this. It's, it's not always consistent, I think. Um, they would still claim this idea that your faith is directly given to you by God. Would they say that that's what took place in the case of Lydia, that uh, it says that God opened her, her heart mm-hmm. and to hear mm-hmm. to that's a proof the text we're going to look at, hopefully. Yeah. We're going to look at, but yes, that's one they would use as an example of that. Mm-hmm. This is a, a passage that I've seen quoted many times and it's pretty powerful. Um, the interesting thing is if, if you don't have your Bibles already open and where you can look at this, it talks about our faith being that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. When it, to them, it's very, when they're looking at it with their, their eyes, they have this, you know, this prejudice, this bias they're looking at. It. So very clearly it says that our faith is not from ourselves. 
It's something that God gives us. Well, there's an interesting thing in the Greek, the original language, in that just like our nouns and our verbs have to match, they even had more um, specific rules that would say even the adjectives have to match. That when words refer back to the antecedent, or um, it would have to match the noun, the pronoun that it goes with. And the interesting thing is, is this, the gender of this word and this word does not match the gender of the word faith. In other words, in the Greek, it was absolutely impossible that the writer had in mind that the gift and that was a reference back to faith. There's no possible way to get that from the original language. And the interesting thing is, is it doesn't match anything else in the verse as well. But actually what it's going back to is the entire claim of salvation. Back which what Brother Buford said, that everything that God's given us, the ability to believe, the word, everything from the plan and the offer of salvation, it's all a gift of God. So, yes, your faith is a gift of God only in a very abstract sense and that you have the opportunity to believe and that you have the word to believe. And then, so, when they... Uh, I don't know when they deal with the uh, command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every mm-hmm. preacher, he that believeth and is baptized, are they saying that he that believeth is the person whom God is, is elected? So the idea would be is in the Calvinist system is yes, they believe in evangelism and, and they would teach that's something that people should go and they should preach and they should do so out of love because somebody out there God has picked and he loves them and sooner or later we'll run across them and when we find them they will respond. <coughs> We don't know who it is, but God knows who it is, knows who it is. And when they hear the message, God's going to prepare them ahead of time with the Holy Spirit, and they'll respond. If they're one of the elect, and they are passed over or missed or something like that, what's going to happen to them? Somehow it's going to work out. God's going to send somebody else. So there will be some way that, again, all these decisions, everything's been made ahead of time. And uh, and any any idea that we think we have a choice is just an illusion. Also, it looks like verse 9 is a continuation of the uh, description of what the gift is. Uh-huh. And I think they would even agree that this not of work, lest anyone should boast, would not be referring to faith, rather, but as you asserted there, but the salvation that God's given. Right, right. Now, they, they would say that, but I've heard people say that the faith itself is directly in, in, imbued in us or instilled and in us by God. What they would say is that Paul is contesting the fact that faith would, someone would claim then that faith itself is a word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you could go to the passages like, uh, what was it in John, where the, the Jews came to Jesus and said, what may we do to do the works of God? And he said, the work of God is to believe on him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could go that path and start looking at other passages like that. Brother Ronald? Oh, this morning, how did we explain the second chapter of James? Is the way they would explain it, that's a very powerful proof text. Uh, their quick answer is the fact that, or, or the assertion, I should say, that James is dealing with judgment from men. Not from God, but from men. So this is, you're already saved, but you need to do these things so that you will be recognized and approved by men. And if you point out and say, well, it talks about uh, being judged and being uh, uh, in, in death in there. It also refers to, uh, my mind's going blank there, uh, faith without works is dead, being alone. They would say, well, that death refers to a physical death. There's more than one type of death mentioned in the Bible. 
So what you have to do is look at the context there and, and point out many things in the context and say, no, this is talking about not judgment from men, but judgment from God. And there's, if we had time, we could look at that. But it is a very powerful passage. They do have a response, and you have to be ready to counter that and look at the context to show that their response is not accurate. We showed that Abraham was justified by works when he offered his son. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, that's a good thing to point out is that he's justified by works. There was no man there. That's something that God was observing and that God was commenting on. Those are, those would be actually the same points I would bring out if I was talking to somebody. That's that's a very good point. Go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. I was going to say you may have made this point. Isn't this context a meritorious type of works in that a person is earning his salvation? If that was the case, we'd have room to boast and say, "Well, I earned my salvation," which is the kind of works that. <laughs> You read my mind. So that's a very important point to bring out. And uh, I didn't mention this here, but I think a a good thing to look at is is in Romans 4, I believe, verse 4. Paul clearly sets forth the definition for works used in the book of Romans, which is this works that brings God into your debts that you earn salvation by. And many times when we see works being discussed, we have to look at the context. I think Romans is an excellent place to get that definition from. And so that works used there in most of Paul's writing is a works that's in contrast. It's opposed to grace. And it's opposed to faith. But yet when you go and look in James, you see that faith and these works are working together. No pun intended. And so this is a completely different kind of, of works. So you have a difference in the context. You have a difference in the meaning of works. And what needs to be, is what we have to do is we have to make a distinction. We have to show them that distinction in the context between meritorious works, works that bring God into our debt for salvation, in other words, perfect law keeping, versus conditional works. You know, baptism by no means brings God into our debt to save us. Otherwise, everybody that ever took a bath would earn salvation and God would have to give it to them. That's not the way it works. So these are conditional works, things that God has required us to do, but in no means bring us into God's debt. In fact, uh, without grace and faith, they don't even make sense. They're just, you know, they're silly things. So, I mean, the the very fact that we do and we think there's any salvation attached to them is is a manifestation of our faith and reliance on God's grace. Grace means what God gives us, faith means what our part. Yes, that's the way we would understand it, but they would they would assert right off the bat that that's not right. And so what we need to be able to do is, in fact, they would use this verse as, as a proof to that. So what we need to be able to do is be ready to show them that. All right, so in talking about uh, unconditional election, the opposite of this is that God is, first of all, he's both loving and conditional. First of all, this is something that they would struggle with, is God doesn't want anyone to be lost. Now, they have some answers. They would say, okay, yes, he doesn't want anyone to be lost of the elect. But they have to insert the words of the elect into each of these passages. And um, usually the argument, as I've heard it, is, well, what was Second Peter written to? It was written to Christians. Therefore, God's talking about Christians throughout the entire book. Every single reference is always to Christians. And so that's pretty easy to tear down if you can just find one reference to anywhere in the book to somebody besides Christians. It doesn't hold up very well. So um, so God is loving. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. 
And then just think of all the conditions. I mean, every single verse anywhere in the Bible where God says, if you do this, you must do this. You know, anytime we find whosoever must, unless, if, all these things imply that there's some condition. And if there's some kind of condition, then we must have some ability to do that. Otherwise, why would God ask us to do it and then turn around and punish us when we don't do it? So we see that God is loving and He is conditional. His love his love itself is unconditional, but the rewards, whether or not we'll go to heaven or go to hell, that is based on the conditions that he sets forth in many, many passages. And again, they would just simply deal with those passages by, by saying, well, it's just an illusion. It's just God pretending to do this, but really there's no condition, there's no option that's already been taken away from you. So that that's a, a rote answer they would continue to give. All right. One other proof text I wanted to look at with you is has been called uh, Free Will's Death Below. Is Romans 9 through 11. I think it's probably one of the harder passages to look at. I want to spend a little bit of time here looking at this. Uh, the very favorite proof text, just to remind you, in Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul is showing the need and the means and the hope of salvation for all through the gospel, Jew and Gentile. Then you can open your Bible and get back to the end of chapter 8. There's very familiar passages there that are talking about the security of our salvation and our hope that we have. And as you get to, um, you know, like Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, and then the conclusion there. In 38 and 39, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has worked himself up to a crescendo where he is he's shown this need and the, the means, the justification for all these people. And then he has us standing on this great precipice of, of hope. And then he's built, it seems to me that he's built up to this point. And then there's a great shift in Romans at this point. That whether it's the Jewish mind saying, well, that's great. God's taking care of us and he's going to take care of us. But what about all these Jews that have been lost? And the Gentile could be asking, well, you promised you would take care of the Jews. And what happened to them? So Paul seems to be anticipating some kind of question or some kind of uh, direction like that. And he begins in, in verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites. And then he goes on to list all the different blessings that they having that they had under the Old Covenant in verses 4 through 5. So, as we said, that kind of raises the question, well, how did this happen? If they've been given all these blessings, and how is it that they're lost? And then the Jew may be saying, how come I've been given all those blessings and I'm not automatically in? And so you can imagine the Jews, this was a big problem for them as you think about the, the discussion in Acts 15. You think about discussions in Galatians uh, where the Jews were constantly wanting to go back to the law to, to force the Gentile to keep the law and basically become a Jew as well. So he begins in verse 6, and he uh, begins to take up this, this answer to them. And he says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. 
nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So he begins in verses 1 to 6 to address this apparent failed promise, or there could be some question there, namely the Jews. And then we're going to see in verses 6 through 13 that he begins to show that it's not a certain people or something by flesh that people are going to be saved, but God has a certain promise. He has a certain plan. And so he looks first at Isaac, and then he looks at Jacob and Esau, which becomes the uh, the proof text that they bring out. So let's read um, verse 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So you can see how they would use this. That here is God, before these two individuals are ever even born, God has already picked out Esau. I don't like him. He's not going to be saved. Jacob, I love him. He's going to be saved. And then it says, not of works, not of will, but of him who calls. And you start, when you see it in that context, you can easily start going, wow, that sounds like their case just laid out right there. Well, a really good thing to do is whenever you see, um, especially if you're having trouble understanding something, a good thing to look at is the context, not only of the surrounding chapter in the book, but in this case, we're fortunate that there, these are quotations from the Old Testament. So we have an extra avenue that we can go back and look up those quotations and see what was the context there. All right. So if we do that, let's see. Um, let's see. Greg Steele, would you read, flip over to Genesis 25 and read that promise there? I think it's 23 and 24. Or maybe 22 and 23. And uh, Scott, would you flip over to Malachi? I'm going to get you to read uh, verses 1 through 5 in a minute of chapter 1. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. All right, so there's our quote. The older shall serve the younger. But remember, this is when uh, Rebecca was going. She was inquiring from the Lord why she was having this struggle within her womb. And what did the Lord say? What was in her womb? Two nations, two peoples. So what is he talking about in that context? Is he talking about individuals or is he talking about nations, peoples? He's talking about nations and people. All right, uh, Scott, would you read uh, that passage there from Malachi? This is the quotation, the other one from verse 13. Chapter 1, verses, um, I think, 2 through 5 will work. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Then Jacob I have loved. And Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his inheritance, and his heritage of the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom had said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build these desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have the indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the water of Israel. 
Alright, so notice in that passage that when he was referring to the Edomites, he talks about they, they, and then he says it's the land of the wicked people. So again there, he's not talking about Esau in particular, the father of the Edomites, but he's talking about two nations. So the point that the Calvinists would typically make is that here we see two individuals that have been predestined by God apart from their works, that they are going to be, one of them will be saved, the other one will be lost. And then he gives a quote that the, uh, the younger, excuse me, the older shall serve the younger. But that didn't happen, did it? When you think about Esau, and think about Jacob, what was their life like? Well, Esau threatened to kill Jacob. Jacob was terrified of Esau. Jacob fled from Esau, and he lived for many years away from Esau. And then when he came back, it was Jacob who bowed down seven times to Esau because he thought that Esau was going to kill him, and he gave him all these gifts. Jacob never did have any rule over Esau. This didn't come true in Jacob's lifetime. There's no way that verse can refer to the individual. It only comes true in the nations. So the context remotely as well as in this present case, there's no way it can refer to the people. It clearly refers to nations. In fact, if you remember, it was a long time before Israel actually had the upper hand over Edom. Edom dominated them for a long time. And really the only place where we see this actually comes true is when uh, Babylon and Greece come in and begin wiping out the different nations and the remnants are carried away. It's Israel, it's Judah rather, that's carried away and there's a remnant that's left of them. But the Edomites, they are virtually annihilated. There's just a handful of people that are left from them. And they basically become absorbed into the, uh, the Jewish nation. So it's in this way that God shows favor to them. Now, keep in mind this passage from Malachi. This is written 1,400 years after Jacob and Esau lived. Clearly, this refers to two nations. And again, it talks about nations, the land of the wicked people. And by this time, when God's expressing his displeasure, Edom has already proved, the Edomites have already proved that they're extremely arrogant and wicked people and hateful and hard people. And, uh, and so we see this judgment at this point is really a judgment as opposed to a, a foretelling of how they were going to be. Trevor, also, <clears throat> when you look at the book of Obadiah in context, think about what it's saying about Edom or Esau there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you think back to Romans chapter 9 through 11. What is God saying there? He's divided between two classes of people, the faithful and the unfaithful, both of the Israelites and in the world in general. And Obadiah makes that point. They, they stand as a class of people who are faithless. So again, an extension of the idea of Esau as being God's uh, enemy, those who would uh, right. stand against Right. Him. So they did become kind of a symbol throughout the Bible of people that were opposed to God. Uh, if they had chosen a way that was opposite of him. So what I want to point out is, first of all, this applies to nations, not individuals. And it's not pertaining to salvation. It's pertaining to, as Greg brought out, that their role in God's plan. Where did Jesus come from? He could have come from, he could have come from Edom, right? He still would have been Abraham, Isaac. But no, God chose Jacob. So he, when God made that choice, and then God gave his covenant, his laws, he gave that to the Jews. When he chose them, he made a choice there that was apart from works. Anything that Jacob or Edom or Esau were going to do. So the choice that was made was a providential and based on the role that the two nations would play. So it's based on the role, not salvation, and it's based on the nations, not individuals. If by chance we were to say, well, it would have to refer to salvation, well, then that would mean that all the Israelites were going to be saved, 
and all the Edomites are going to be condemned. And of course, we know that's not true. There's lots of passages that speaks of Jews who were lost, and, and certainly there were some Edomites who were saved. All right, so let's look at the next troubling part in this chapter. So verses 14 through 18, what we see is God is defending his right to make a sovereign decree and to reject the nation of Israel. And he's going to do that in, in two parts. He's going to reject uh, their further role in God's plan. And then also there's a spiritual rejection of the fact that the Israelites were faithless. And because of that, God's going to push them away. They're not going to get a free end just because they happen to be a Jew. So he is definitely uh, setting forth his sovereignty then. So let's read verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So again, he's setting forth the idea that he does have the right to choose who will receive mercy and who will receive uh, wrath. He gets that choice. But if you think about that, look at other passages like Proverbs 28.13 and Isaiah 55.7. Who does he say that he'll have mercy on? He says he'll have mercy on those that repent and that are humble and that will believe. So what we need to do is not assume the basis of God's choice. Again, this is something we've talked about a lot. Yes, God has made a choice and he has determined who he will save and who he will condemn. But we don't need to assume the basis is something that's independent of us or anything having to do with us. God's choice may include our character. You think about Psalms 147, uh, verse 6, where he talks about him drawing near to the humble but rejecting the proud. It certainly doesn't include becoming a Jew, which would be the very fact that would be aggravating to the Jews. You know, why don't I get a free end because I'm a Jew? All right, so God's choice here we see in verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This is our not but construction again. Whose will is the most important? Well, if I wanted to be saved and God didn't want me to, what chance would I have of being saved? Zero. There's nothing I could do if I was on my own. But if God wanted me to be saved, he could do it. He could save me without my choice in it. It's his will is the one that's the harder to come by. His will is the one that's important. His will is the one that's the relatively um, fundamental one. All right. So then let's talk about 17. Think about Pharaoh. Where it talks about him being raised up to show his power in him. Pharaoh was destroyed. And again, getting back to this point, despite his will to conquer. Remember, Moses came to him and said, let the people go. God says, let the people go. And he says, no, I will not let them go. What's his will? His will is, I'm going to hold on to him and I'm going to win. He had already proved himself at the very beginning of Exodus that he was an extremely wicked man. Think about him murdering all of those babies just to keep the Jews under subjection. He had already shown himself to be wicked well before any of these verses are brought up about him having a hard heart. There's several passages that refer to Pharaoh hardening his heart. When God comes to him and says, let the people go, and then when the plagues come and the plagues are relented, and Pharaoh sees he gets some leniency, then he hardens his heart and says no. 
But there's also several verses that talk about God hardening his heart. Every time that God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let the people go, what did Pharaoh do? No. Every time that God sent Moses and then brought on one of the plagues and then relaxed, that just caused Pharaoh to harden his heart even more and more. But was that a choice that Pharaoh made or that God made? Well, God had some play in it that he decided he was going to harden, but it was not without Pharaoh's consent. So what we see is, is that God's choice may include a judicial hardening. In other words, as the judge, he's already looked at somebody like Pharaoh in this case and said, you've proven yourself that you're extremely wicked and I have some purpose for you. I'm going to use you for something. I could destroy you now, but instead I'm going to hang on to you for a little bit. I'm just going to harden your heart further so I can use you for some demonstration. And that's exactly what he did with Pharaoh. So what we see in the last part of the chapter is that God, just like Pharaoh, God endured the Jewish nation for a while. Now the willful Jew may blame God for his own rejection, but he has no right to blame God for his condemnation. And there's a passage that's quoted from Jeremiah 18, 1-11. There's another reference that's brought up there. And that's good to look at because what you see in that case is the potter is trying to do something with some clay, but the clay responds badly in his hand. It has some blemish in it. Something's not quite right. So he makes it out to be something else. And what we see also in 2 Timothy 2.20, another reference to being uh, vessels in the house, it says to prepare ourselves, to get ourselves ready to be whether vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor. So this is a choice that we decide. If we decide to do good, then God can use us for glory. But if we decide to reject God and harden ourselves against us, then he can use us to demonstrate his power. Either way, he can make use of us depending on how we want to be. In the same way God endured with the Jews and that he had foretold a long time ago that his plan was to include the Gentiles. And the only reason you think about all the verses that talk about the Jews, if it had not been for a remnant, we would have been destroyed. We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that's, those are the verses being quoted here. And the point being made is, is that if God didn't want that remnant, they would have been wiped out just like Edom. And the only reason they weren't is because God had a plan in mind for them. And he was using them to bring forth Jesus, the Messiah. So ultimately, the Gentiles are saved by faith. The Jewish nation stumbled because of Jesus and because of the law. So that's just kind of the chapter in a nutshell. Uh, and if you, the main lesson is if you look at the verses that are being quoted as well as the context, it shows very clearly that this cannot be used the way the Calvinists would like to. All right, let's move on to limited atonement. So here's another question. Jesus gave his life for his sheep, his friends, his church, no one else. So that's who, that's it. That's who he gave his life for. That's who was to be atoned. That's who's mentioned in those verses. But that's it. No one else. So those are the only people that are going to be saved. He didn't give his life for anybody else. Not for the lost, not for the sinners, but these people that he had already picked out. How would you deal with that? Think about what the text does not say. There's nothing in these verses where it says no one else. Yes, Jesus gave his life for his sheep and for his friends and for the church. But there's nothing to say that in these verses anywhere that it didn't have any application or any potential application for anybody else. This is another case of assumption and what we call eisegesis where you put your meaning and your thought into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. 
So it's an ambiguous passage really on this point. And what's happening is there's a failure here to make a distinction between the provision and the application of Christ's atoning sacrifice. One thing that uh, I, I'm sure they have a way of dealing with it, but uh, then Peter said to them, repent and, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the last verse says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. To be saved, we have to obey these commands. Mm-hmm. The Lord adds us to the church when we when we obey. We, he gave them the choice. Uh, he, he told them, you need to do this, all of them. And some of them did. And the ones he, he, that he that obeyed, he added to the church. Yes, he, he's only saved the church. But uh, there are people who have chosen to be uh, obedient to him, and they are added to the church after they have done so. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the very simple interpretation. When you read the text, what else would you walk away with? Unless you've read Calvin and Augustine, and you're trying to shoehorn and wrap all these things around it. You know, and again, their idea is, is that that we are included just like Peter. They're supposed to preach to everybody. And the ones who God's picked out, they're the ones who are going to listen. They're the ones who are going to respond. They're the ones who are going to obey. Peter didn't know who was going to respond and obey, so he has to open it out there for everybody. God takes care of in his own secret counsel and his secret will. He picks out who's going to be saved and who's not going to be. The Great Commission was given that he was sent out into the world preaching the gospel to all who are there. Every preacher. Again, they would say, yes, that's because they don't know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. So what else can they do? It gets the board on the ridiculous. Well, again, that's really what we're, we're kind of up against is that there's a lot of passages that in some amount of fairness, because we're not coming to it with the same prejudice that they have, that it clearly teaches something to us. But to them it doesn't because they're wrapping this prejudice around it. And they, they've been steeped in this learning. And so, so what we have to do is, is there's a certain amount of wiggle room that I'm, I'm allowed, you know, I'm willing to give up on passages like that. Unless I can find something very clearly in the verse that refutes them, I try not to lead with those passages. I try to lead with passages there's no way they can say anything about it. Or if they can, it's very quickly snuffed out. I saw some other hands done. Trevor, for this, can we use uh, Luke 23, the thief on the cross? He was not a friend of Jesus. He was not part of the church. He was not Jesus' sheep. He didn't follow Jesus. So basically, at this point in time, Jesus chose this individual because of what he said. I, I don't think I would lead with it because they would. I think they would again say that you know he's one of the like one that the other was. Yeah. So let's run through these real quick. There's a universal provision. Look at this. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins also, but the whole world. Now the answer to that would be is that, well, he's talking about Jew versus Gentile, or, or he's talking about the, they don't want it to be the saved versus the not saved, the elect versus the non-elect. But again, if you look in every single place where that exact same word, both in the Greek and the English, is used throughout that entire book, it's never used to refer to Gentile or any other kind of good thing. It's about the world is passing away and the lust thereof. And about fear not, I have overcome the world. Our faith is our victory to overcome the world. It's the exact same word there. That Jesus is the potential salvation for these people also. 
So that one is one that I think you... They have an answer, but it's pretty easy to snuff out if you look at the context. This one, I don't see how you can begin to answer. Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Well, he's making a distinction between the elect, the ones who are going to be saved, and the ones who are not. These are the ones who are saved, the ones who believe, and these are the ones who are not. He is potentially the Savior of them just as well, but there's a special distinction for those who actually do believe and take advantage of that. So clearly here in this case, Jesus' atoning benefit was available to all men, but it's especially useful to those who actually take advantage of it. And that one I'm not real sure how they can work on. So there's universal universal provision but limited acceptance. Let's talk about irresistible grace real quick. Uh, again, this is a very similar thing. There's an assumption here about people being dragged by the Holy Spirit or being drawn by the Holy Spirit to God. Again, I, I would agree that the Holy Spirit does bring people and that the elect will inevitably come. But who are they and how do they come? In the same context, he says, everyone who sees, this is the will of God, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him. The precedence is, is that God wants these people to be saved. That whoever does this, those are the ones. So that's, that's completely backwards from what Calvinism would teach. How does God draw? Again, the context brings out hearing, learning, not operating. And then I think you can look at other familiar passages in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that talk about us being called through the Holy Spirit and through the Gospel. Alright, so there's Lydia. Uh, just very quickly, I'll just rattle off these to finish up these last few slides. So, uh, Lydia, uh, she had been, her, it says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. But again, how did he open her heart? That's assumed. Was it through the words spoken? Or is it directly by the Holy Spirit? They've made an assumption. We could stop there and say, you know, the passage is ambiguous. You can't use it as a proof text. But the exact same words used in Luke 24:32, where it talks about Jesus opening the scriptures up to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and their heart burning within them when they heard his words. So it's the exact same effect and it's clearly happening through the words that Jesus spoke through the scriptures. So there's, uh, in, so we can easily say this exact same thing was happening here with Paul and his preaching. You know, also it could have been providential. There's verses in Psalms where it talks about the psalmist being, uh, you know, chastened by the Lord, and because of that, he turned back to the Scripture. So it could have been something happened in Lydia's life that, you know, made her a little more open to the the, the preaching at that time. So the problem is, is this proof tech requires an assumption. It's just not there. Useful chart. There are several different works that the Holy Spirit does. And here's other passages that, that use the exact same words and speak of the exact same works being accomplished by God's Word or by the Gospel. So, you know, the question is, is well, what is it that the Holy Spirit does through this direct operation that the Gospel doesn't do? All that's accomplished by the Gospel. So why in the world would you say, well, the Holy Spirit has to do that? And then resistible grace. My favorite passage is Matthew 23:37 about how often I would bring you under my wings, but you were not willing. But other good passages. Uh, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, this is something the listeners were doing, not God was doing. And then this is great. Many are called. Well, there's the, the efficacious grace, the call. But few are chosen. And then Acts 7.51, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Again, very clear statement that they are resisting the call of the Holy Spirit.
And I love this passage. It's, it's a bit symbolic, but from Isaiah 5, 3 to 4, where God's calling Jew and Jerusalem to judgment. And he's using the idea of a garden that he's taking care of and set up with hedges. And he's looking for fruit. And he's coming in judgment. He says, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? So he's asking this rhetorical question. I've done everything that I could possibly do, but yet you did not respond. What more could I have done? Now, whose fault is that for them not being saved? Is it God's fault? He says, I did everything that could be done. Whose fault is it? It's clearly Jerusalem and Judas. So sometimes there's a charge made. Well, you believe in a weak God. A God that tries and fails is no God at all. Well, but the assumption is, is that man's power to resist God arose from himself. God enables man to choose. We're not doing this in spite of God and we're taking something away from him. He's giving us the ability to choose. The only failure here is on our part. So again, you notice this reoccurring theme of that there's so much assumption embedded in everything. Many passages that talk about God using persuasion and enticing people, kicking against the crit, the pricks, uh, people being volunteers, and then and then Hosea, I think this is powerful, in Hosea two fourteen through sixteen, where he talks about alluring Israel out into a, a place and that she would no longer call her call him master, but call him husband. So the idea that God does not want to be a tyrant, but He wants to be a husband to us. Okay, next and lastly we come to Perseverance of the Saints. For this point we have this quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. They whom God has accepted as beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the status of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And based on this, we have this question in this proof text. Nothing can remove us from God's hand. So how can we ever be lost once in God's hand? You see, John 10, 27-30 and Romans 8, 31-39 are popular proof texts. Well, how do we answer this? Well, first, I would admit and agree, the believer is secure in Christ. There are many passages that teach the security of the believer. However, that's not really the question that's under discussion. The question that we need to be concerned about is, yes, nothing may remove us from God's hand, but what if we choose to leave? What if we decide to abandon Christ and to apostatize? Is that possible? Well, Let's talk about the possibility of apostasy. To me, one of the more powerful passages is Galatians 5.4, a very popular one. that says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Well, this is exactly what the Westminster Confession of Faith said was impossible. It's impossible to fall from grace, but yet that's what we see here. Now, the typical Calvinist answer is, yes, these people are no longer saved, but they were never really saved to begin with. But let's test that answer by looking closely at the passage again. It says you have become estranged from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Well, how can you fall from a position where you never stood? How can you be estranged from someone who was always your enemy? The verbs in these passages clearly show a change in state. Someone has become estranged you have fallen from grace. To fall from position means you must have once been there. If they've fallen from grace, that means they must have once been in a position of grace. If they've now become estranged from Christ, that means they must have at one point been a friend or reconciled with Christ. 
So these pa this passage simply will not accept that as a, an answer that's consistent with the verse itself. Another powerful passage is Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 39. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? First of all, notice the condition of these people, the first condition of these people. They say, if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Well, this is what the Calvinist says is impossible for anyone but the elect. Because we are all born totally depraved, and we have a carnal mind, according to the proof text that they use from 1 Corinthians 2. That says it's impossible to understand the things of God. But yet here is someone who has received the knowledge of the truth. And notice the author includes himself in this category. If we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So these people are clearly safe. And also notice at the end of the text we've quoted that this person was uh, sanctified by the blood of the cross, by the blood of the covenant. So this is not someone who is outside the atonement of Christ's sacrifice. This is someone who is uh, atoned for and sanctified by that covenant. So clearly this person was saved, but look at their condition now. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So the warning here is very clear, that even though we may be saved now, we may have the knowledge of the truth, and we may be sanctified by the blood of the covenant, yet it is possible that if we sin willfully, in other words, if we deliberately step away from God, that there's no, thing, there's no sacrifice that remains. All that's left for us is judgment. God doesn't have another message or another sacrifice or something else to hold out for us. What we have is fantastic, but it is what God has given us. And if we do not accept that, then there is nothing else. I think it's also important to notice that these people have insulted the spirit of grace. And again, I think this is powerful as it relates to the direct operation of the Holy Spirit in irresistible grace. And it shows that these people have insulted that spirit. So clearly there is a possibility of apostasy. All right, now, we've looked at a lot of different passages, looked at a lot of different proof texts on both sides. How do we conclude this? Well, as we've noticed, there's been lots of different verses, and uh, it can be disappointing to see how the Calvinist very quickly brushes away what seems to be very clear passages to us, uh, passages which clearly show what we need to do. And they do this because of this great context that they have um, based on, on their understanding of uh, of human writers and creeds and, and what they've been taught. So they bring this prejudice to their interpretation of the scripture. Now how do you shake them up and get them to realize that this is not a trivial academic matter? Uh, ultimately, Calvinism is fundamentally wrong because it blasphemes God. Why do I say that? Well, it makes God the originator of sin. And then, what's worse, is it teaches that God is going to punish those who are condemned for his choice. Not for a choice they made, but for a choice that he made. And they may argue that Adam made the choice, it wasn't God. But yet, 
it was God that chose that Adam would sin. And furthermore, it was God that designed the human race such that when one of them sinned, then they would all become uh, contaminated from that point forward. So whether it was God's decree or God's design, one way or the other, God chose that we would be punished for one person's choice and not our own. So it makes God the originator of sin, and it teaches that God's going to punish us for his choice. This makes God unjust in the highest order to the highest degree. Now, typically, the Calvinists would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, I'm not willing to charge God. He's, he's God, and he'll do whatever he wants to do, and that's his right. And that's true. God is sovereign, and he does have the right to do what he thinks is best. And I would not question that. However, God has revealed to us what he considers to be just. As we looked at last time in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, I believe, where uh, God says that the Israelites should not punish children for the sins of their fathers. But yet, that's what we see him doing in Calvinism. So Calvinism holds the race, the creation, to a higher standard of justice than the Creator himself. The other thing that I think we run into many times is this reaction, well, it's, it's academic, it's a mystery, it's hard to understand, and it's not really that important. Well, but as we saw previously in Romans 3, I think verses 28 and 29, is that God has intended to demonstrate his justness and his righteousness through our justification, specifically at the cross. And so if our justification is a mystery to us, then that's either our fault or God failed in his ability to teach us and demonstrate his character to us. So we can't just walk away from this and say, well, it just can't be understood, that it's, it's a great mystery and, and it's just unresolvable, it's a paradox that cannot be explained. No, if it's not our fault, then God either failed to demonstrate his justness or God's just simply unfair. That's the dilemma that Calvinism creates, and there's no way out from underneath it or around it. It's something that the Calvinist has to wrestle with. Either their God is unfair, or he lied or was incompetent and unable to teach and demonstrate his character, which was something that was paramount to him, you know, something that was associated and included with the cross. Secondly, Calvinism perverts the plan of salvation. You know, it, it denies the need the true need for baptism, in that it, it distanced baptism to our our salvation. It makes it non-related. And I think that's important because even uh, many Calvinists will be baptized, but they won't do it for the right reason. They'll be baptized because they think it's a good thing to do or because it's a command that we should keep just like observing the Lord's Supper or attending worship service or singing. However, think of Acts 19. When Paul came to Ephesus and he found the uh, uh, brethren there who had been baptized according to John's baptism, they needed to be baptized again. Their baptism was not sufficient. If we are not baptized for the right reason, then that puts us vulnerable to the judgment of God. We have not obeyed what he has required of us. We have not done what he has said. We have altered it and done something else. And so that makes us vulnerable to his judgment. And it's not on a trivial matter, it's on the matter that pertains to our actual conversion and our salvation. So I can think of no point that is more practical and relevant uh, to be studied and understood than what we must do to be saved. 
and Calvinism perverts that. Now, also, in, in trying to just validate it, Calvinism requires a prejudicial interpretation. Uh, they have, as we've said, many answers to many questions, but the only way to get that answer is to come to the text with this preconceived notion of God's sovereignty. And the important thing to realize is, while that may be an answer, some way of looking at it, is that the, the answer that you naturally get from the text just by picking up and reading it? Or do you have to read Calvin or Augustine or be raised in a, an environment where that is the, the foundation of the teaching? And so that's very bothersome that you have to have this preconceived notion when you go to the, to the scripture to, to, to get justification, to get a proof text to actually teach Calvinism. But even more bothersome is the fact that there's many passages that just flatly contradict Calvinism. Uh, we looked at Matthew 23:37. Uh, these passages um, on the possibility of, of apostasy. Uh, all of these things deny Calvinism. And incidentally, uh, Calvinism was rejected by the early church until the time of Augustine. Uh, the early church fathers, as they're called, uh, up until the time of Augustine, believed uh, very dearly in man's free will, and they saw. Uh, it evil to uh, say that man had no choice and by nature sin they saw it as an attack and a charge against God which I think is very accurate and you know, obviously the Bible is our standard and that's what we should go by but for those that take some confidence or feel that there's some justification that this has been the belief for so many years I think it could be valuable to go back and look at the fact that this was not the belief Calvinism was not the, the dominant belief until we get to Augustine, that the early church did not believe this. So in conclusion, I think we should reject Calvinism today and do our best to persuade others to do the same for their soul, uh, or for the sake of their soul, and for the sake of unity uh, of God's church and for God's glory. So we had a few questions to think about. Obviously, we don't have time to go through these in any kind of detail, so I'll just hit the highlights here. How would you answer, how can you not fellowship those whom God has saved? And the key I just want to bring out here is that this this oftentimes does have an impact on fellowship. And uh, obviously we want to establish what someone has to do to be saved according to the Bible. But then I think we also have to realize that fellowship is not based on whether or not we think someone is saved and you know, what God will do in the ultimate judgment. That's a question that only God is qualified and only God is authorized to make. That's none of our business. Our basis for fellowship is uh, based on what God has given us. What do people do? What can we see? By their fruits we shall know them. So how do you prevent or deal with the discussion from going in circles? I think there's two key points. First of all is we have to realize that there are oftentimes layers of error in a person's understanding. That there are some errors that are more fundamental and by accepting those it logically leads to other errors. And so you can liken it to a tree. Uh, if there's a, a great tree that you want to chop down, how do you do that? Do you start picking off one leaf at a time, or do you cut off some branches? Now, if you want to chop it down, uh, you go straight for the root. You go straight for the trunk. And that's what we have to do in this case as well. So we have to realize that there are beliefs or ideals, or ideals and ideas that lead to other errors within Calvinism. And... We have to realize that so that we won't end up going around in circles 
and we can go straight to the heart of the problem, to the, the root of the problem. And I think uh, closely related to this, a, a second thing that we need to do is uh, we need not to try to multiply passages. I think ideally that should be valuable for someone to get a sense of what all the Scripture says, but in reality it's difficult for someone, including myself, to take in a huge number of passages when they are they may be so contrary to what I currently believe. And so I think the best thing to do is to pick out a few passages that you think most clearly and concisely make your point and make a stand there. Uh, pick a few passages and master those and, I, and hold your ground. And I think that will go a long way toward uh, preventing the discussion from going on longer than it should and preventing it from going into circles and getting confusing. I think that will make it go more efficiently and being more effective in persuading the other, other person. So what are the most powerful proof texts, pro and con? Uh, just so you know, there's a huge number of proof texts that can be used. We've looked at some of, the, uh, some of those in this series. By no means is this the most powerful. In fact, some of the comments that people have brought up show that there's a lot of passages that we haven't brought up formally that are very powerful. I, I think uh, James Stewart that Brother Chandler brought up tonight is a very, very powerful passage. And... Um, and there are a multitude of other passages. So, again, this, this is somewhat subjective in that um, it depends on your understanding of a passage uh, whether or not it becomes powerful. The, the more, the better you understand a passage, the better you will be able to present your case and, and present it in a powerful way. So, and that's going to vary from one person's understanding to another and what passage they spent the most time with. All right. Well, I appreciate very much everyone's time and everyone's attention. I know we've raced through a lot of this material. appreciate very much all the different teachers who have spent a lot of time and effort preparing for the class. We've had a lot of fantastic studies, and I appreciate so much everyone doing their part. And I appreciate your interest and, and willingness to, to grow and learn more about these things, and I hope everyone will be encouraged to, to reach out to their neighbors and to their families and friends and share the gospel with other people and be confident that that they may not be prepared for everything that people may say but maybe we'll be a, b a little bit better prepared now and uh, if we get some question that we don't know the answer to we can be confident in knowing who does know the answer and where the source is and that's God we can go back to his word and we can study it and we can find the answers we don't have to be afraid of the truth as long as we're willing to do Whatever God commands, we will be fine. Thank you much.